Welcome to Putting It Together, the podcast that goes through the entire body of work of Stephen Sondheim, show by show and song by song. My name is Kyle Marshall, your self-described Sondheim expert. I'm going to preface this right now and let you all know that there's probably going to be more than one of you that gets a little bit mad at my ratings on the albums of Merrily We Roll Along. As you'll hear with my conversation with Jake Nielsen here in just a moment, uh, we go through four of the different recordings, we give our ratings on each of them, what we liked, what we don't like, uh, but I fear... Well, fear might be a strong word. I know that some of you are not going to like what my ultimate ratings are, but that's a little hook for you to listen to the rest of the episode. I wanted to let you know two things here at the very beginning. One, later in the episode, basically as we're wrapping up, you'll know the moment when it comes. I misspeak. I say orchestra when I meant to say overture. It'll make a lot more sense when we get to that part of the episode, but just know when I say orchestra... I meant Overture. Basically, they don't play the full Overture in the latest Merrily Roll Along, and it is a travesty. I also wanted to read this email that Joel sent to me here talking about the song Honey that we discussed last week on our Cut Songs episode. He writes in part here, Beth clearly loves Frank, but Frank notably never says I love you in the song. That's Beth's line. He's the one making jokes. Frank's also the one whose true feelings are clear. We're going to be happy and sad. Frank's lyrics are all about soothing her and assuring her things will be fine, but he doesn't talk about how he feels about her. His one compliment is physical. God, you feel good. It's the sort of scene that, when performed, is laced with subtext. Beth's fears are clear. I've never been so depressed. And she's marrying a man who doesn't love her as much as she loves him. It's really a Buddy Sally scenario with the genders reversed. Beth is trying to convince herself that she'll be happy, and Frank is trying to convince her of the same thing. At the end, they sing, it's going to be fine, but neither truly believe it. Of course, the same idea is conveyed in the Not A Day Goes By reprise. Notice that now it's Beth and Mary singing how much that they love Frank, but Frank doesn't say a lot. Honey is just more blunt about telling the audience what's going on. I thought this was such a great point to make and i'm glad that joel wrote in to to tell us about that the more i think about it the more i kind of wish that they utilized honey some more but again i do love that not a day goes by reprise so much mostly for the music that plays underneath it regardless love to know what you think you can of course send emails to putting it together podcast at gmail.com but we should probably get into my conversation about all of these different recordings of merrily with uh, jake nielsen starting right now Nielsen, thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me, Kyle. I'm such a big fan of the show. I'm so excited to be here. You know, even from your website, you're a writer, a director, composer. So I think my first question is, uh, why can't you leave something for the rest of us? (laughs) Oh, I've always been such a control freak. I have sort of stepped back recently with some stage shows we've done where I've done lyrics and I always co-write music with my um, co-writer, Matthew. Left the book in someone else's hands, which is really, really nice. But yeah, I think with the short films I've done, I've sort of had such a clear idea of what I wanted them to be and yeah. and I really wanted to st- sort of strangle that creative control. But now I'm, I'm learning to let go a little bit more. <laughs> Can you describe maybe your latest short film that's available for people to see? Yeah. Um, so On Hold is this short we made. Um, goodness, when I, I, mean, I wrote it when I was about 24. 
24, 23. We made it when I was about 25 and then finished it when I was 26. That's when it came out sure. back in uh, 2018. It is a short film. Basically, it's just completely autobiographical about a young woman who works in a call center and wants to be a musical composer and is kind of reaching that point a few years post-university where everyone's like, well, you best become a cog real quick. And you're like, but I'm not ready yet. I didn't, what? And sort of dealing with that post-university arrested development and over the course of one day she kind of figures out what she wants and pretty simple is what she wants to not value her friendships and instead pursue money and fame <laughs> no no not really i think maybe she okay. it, i i wonder if after she leaves because the film ends with her kind of quitting i wonder mm-hmm. if she um does go on to down the frank path or i like to think that she'd probably stick around the charlie path or at the very least the mary path come a sort of embittered alcoholic who has witty mm. witticisms all the time. <laughs> uh, I do want to focus on like the music element uh, for your first appearance here. Not everyone does, but was there this moment that inspired you? It was like, oh, I think music might be the thing that I want to spend some time learning how to do. Yeah, I think it's such an odd way to get into musicals, I suppose. But Avenue Q was really my first kind of introduction. And I was like 11 years old when it came out, I think. And um, I, I was into writing comedy music and people like Tim Minchin and um, Eddie Perfect sure. and uh, Tom Lear and stuff as a young kid. And I would write sort of what I considered funny poems, I'm sure. I look back at them now when I throw up in my mouth. But um, <laughs> And then I, I heard um, Avenue Q, my friend brought it in. And uh, he was a singer, and so he had Wicked and a few other ones. And I thought, this is like comedy writing, but serious. Like you can actually yeah. do something. Because I always found it very difficult to write sort of pop songs and stuff because it was just, I couldn't take myself seriously enough to not laugh at you know, that kind of that mm-hmm. kind of lyricism. That um, sincerity, and, sincerity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, um, I think that is what sort of pushed me into it. Where I was like, oh, I want to, I want to do this. And then um, once I at that point I could only write lyrics. I didn't have any musical talent, and it. it's still you know not great. I still have a um, a co-composer who does the more technical stuff with me. So mm-hmm. I sort of do melodies and chords and that kind of stuff. Yeah. When I got into university, it was when I thought, well, I said to my friend, I said, do you want to write a musical? And he said, yeah, I do. And we just really kind of figured it out as we went along. Like a dummy, he said yes. <laughs> yeah. And now 12 years later, here we are yeah. still writing shows together. That's exciting though. Like in your time here together, is there something that you're the most proud of? Well, I think On Hold has been our sort of one of our most successful things. It did really well mm-hmm. for us at festivals and we um, won an, Acad- an Academy Qualifying Award and that went pretty well. It got a translation last year into Italian, which was really exciting. But I think that and then there's a stage show we did called uh, Tall Poppy or Miss Australia, which is about the first ever Miss Australia, which was in the 20s, which is just a really great story that hadn't been told. So I think those two, what I'm most proud of. We're writing something now that's much more commercial, speaking sure. of merrily. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, we'll see how that goes, I guess. <laughs> Oh, that's exciting. So, I mean, if Avenue Q was kind of your first introduction to, we'll say, musicals in general, what was your first introduction to Stephen Sondheim? Well, uh, mine was the same show that almost everybody who's a kid gets into Stephen with, and that's obviously Evening Primrose. No, I'm joking. Um, it's Into the Woods. Um, <laughs> I would love it, though. It's like, no, I was obsessed with Evening Primrose. <laughs> no, um, I actually, I was. we were hanging out one day and at school, and my friend, the one who brought in... Um, Avenue Q, Declan, was singing um, Worst Pies in London, actually. And I was like, what? What is that song? It doesn't, he said, it's from a musical. And I was like, no, it doesn't seem like it's from a musical. It's all over the place. And there's no consistent, like, melody. And it's, like, really, like, pattery right. and weird. And um, and he said, oh, no, it's from Sweetie Todd. If you like musicals, you have to get into Sondheim. And so he suggested Into the Woods. And I watched that and was and was like, oh, my goodness, this is so massive and astonishing. And, I, and you know that, that feeling when you're like, 
I know I'm missing so much, mm. but I know one day I'll be able to get it all and it's all there. And then I think it was two years later, there was an excursion to go and see Sunday in Sydney. It was for year 12 students and um, they had two places missing and my drama teacher said, would you like to come along to me and my friend? I mean, then, oh, okay. We we're like 12 years old, 13 years old. Mm. And that was the same thing. I was like, this is so touching and so impressive. And I know I'm missing 90% of it, <laughs> but I'm getting enough to want more. That's awesome. From there, what was the long road to get into Merrily We Roll along? Well, I think Merrily was one of the ones I came to later. Once I hit university, I got dived back in hardcore proper, went to Into the Woods Sunday and then Company. And I think maybe, yeah, a little night music first and then finally Merrily, which is funny because I always think Merrily is one of the most approachable ones for um, non-converts. It's when I'm trying to get somebody into Sondheim, I usually show them company and then maybe Merrily, partly because there's great pro shots of both, but because I think songs-wise, it's one of the easiest ones to get into. You know, that's interesting to bring that up and something that I don't think I've spent a lot of time talking about here in this season. I agree with you in, in many ways. I mean, as far as like broadly appealing to people, like there's not a whole lot of like out there out there music inside of yeah. Merrily We Roll Along which can be the case for some of, of his other stuff so as an in you would think that Merrily would be more than what it is you would wouldn't you I mean it, it's a, mm -hmm. I guess it was it was enlightening to me as I sort of went, dug into the history of the show afterwards and went oh this is no one likes this and then it's still <laughs> taken a while to get right and even listening to this season um, of your show I've been I've been somewhat surprised at points at people's sort of still reticence to really call it, you know, a, a brilliant piece, at least as a, as a whole piece. I think everyone agrees that the score yeah. is pretty damn perfect. For sure. That's a great segue. Like, is this then, having seen, you, you've seen the pro shot then, I'm assuming? Yes, yes, many, many times. <laughs> so you've seen the pro shot, you've listened to the score, like, do you then consider it a failure? Well, I had this answer prepared because I knew you've been asking everybody. I consider it a success personally. Um, I think that maybe partly because the material is just too close to home for me to consider it anything but. I mean, I mm -hmm. write musicals with two of my closest friends. We've been friends since high school and university. So it's it touches on too many things and it gives me too many home truths and too many ideas that I, I find so both confronting and enlightening for me to call it um, a failure. I can see why people have issues with parts of the book. I can see why sometimes you could say it's clunky or a little bit cornball at times. And I can see why people are left wanting but mm -hmm. personally, for me, none of those things could even could touch it any, anywhere to move it into a failure category. Mm -hmm. Something interesting that um, one of your guests said, I think it might have been on the um, Franklin Shepard Inc. episode, that um, he was left wondering what the show is trying to tell you at the end. Like if you're a, mm -hmm. if you're a young person, it's trying to tell you, you know, stick to your path, stay on your dreams, and keep the people who are close to you important, and or rather, people who are important to you close. And then if you're an older person, it doesn't really have much to tell you. And I guess, sure. well, it does, because it'll say, well, yes, you you did do the right thing by sticking to what was important to you, or, God forbid, you didn't, and maybe now's the time to change. I feel there's still a bit of hope at the end of the show, in the rewritten version, the 85 version, because when you know we come back to Frank and he's doing the closing eyes and swallowing thing and taking that snapshot, and to me that says he's remembering what he's just gone over and he maybe have learned something from it and perhaps... And maybe I'm being far too optimistic here, but perhaps there is a chance for mending fences between him and Mary and Charlie. And perhaps he will go back and say, oh, okay, I've, I just spent the last two hours going over my life backwards. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm a complete ass. In many ways, this, this could be looked at in the most charitable of ways as an updated version of A Christmas Carol, right? You're going through these different time periods to hopefully be shown that, hey, 
yes, I'm this old miser person, but I can still change. I can still mend the, the defenses that I have broken along the way. We don't ever see that resolution, but I think that can be what gets instilled in this, uh, especially in the new modern staging from that pro shot from 2013. You could read it as him sitting on those steps and his life flashing before his eyes before coming back and being like, hey, I remember sitting on this rooftop. Maybe I should go back to that line of thinking if, if you want to be charitable to the reading of it yes i think you're right i think otherwise that the, the ending is sort of i don't know what else i mean i'm sure there's lots of things you can draw from it but i don't think you could say that you that, that interpretation is not a pretty solid one like that he's sitting mm-hmm. there and going back and, and and missing that and wanting that moment again and he even says in the first scene if i could be back with charlie and do it all again then i would i'd do it in a second and i hate my life and all yeah. that kind of stuff Hey everyone, just kind of breaking into the conversation to tell you about some of the people and organizations that help this show continue to go. Of course, if you'd like to help support the show for absolutely free, you can give a rating and review on whatever app you listen to podcasts in. That's of course greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to help monetarily, which will only help grow and make this show better, you can do so over at our Patreon page. Please do not donate if it impacts you negatively financially. I also need to give a huge thank you to the God That's Good tier from Patreon. That's Jack, Todd, Robert, Louise, Christopher, Stephen, Derek, and Witty. Together as a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta based businesses and organizations. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you do get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network. So it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This week, we're also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, so let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. In the warring megatowers of a cyberpunk dystopia, four teenagers use their modified hoverboards to sneak into other dimensions. It's dangerous. It's stupid. It's completely outlawed by the giant corporations that own the entire world. And it's the coolest thing ever. This is Slug Blaster. Brinley is going to use her beam like a grappling hook. Scampion, foam jet right to the center of the disc. A bunch of lightning just sort of crackles around him. This is our chance to put our crew on the map. Yes, pleases me to know that I have done well. At the last possible moment, you fire. Quantum Kickflip returns with an all-new adventure. Season 2 premieres Wednesday, October 5th. What are we then talking about here today, Jake? All right, so we're talking about four different past recordings. <laughs> four. That is um, correct. From what I can find, I, I'm sure there has probably been more than what is available online, but 
for me at least, there is these four versions of the show that are just readily available on both either streaming or I can download digitally uh, or have CD copies of it. So which are the original Broadway cast recording from 1981. We have the off-Broadway revival from 1994. The Haymarket Theater in Leicester recording, also from 1994, although in a moment we'll talk about how it was actually from 1992. And then the Encores revival recording from 2012. The only one that I have not been playing selections of here over this past season is the Haymarket Theater version, but it is available pretty much everywhere for people to go and listen to if they so choose. So to jump into this, this is how I think we should structure this. We'll go here basically sequentially and just talk about the recordings in general, maybe some things that stood out for us here and there. But we're talking about the recordings, not necessarily about the shows, but the actual recording of the show, Absolutely. which is a very different beast. <laughs> yeah, my first note here is it's going to be difficult for us to discuss these without the massive differences in the text itself. But let's start with the original Broadway cast. So I guess for you, just as a cast recording of something to listen to, show music, uh, what are your takeaways? I mean, I, I love it. I think it's fan- I think it's fantastic. I like that we've got the original orchestra in there, which doesn't happen again until some, I think maybe the 2012 Encores version. Mm-hmm. Again, it's difficult with some of the text choices. I, I cannot deal with Frank singing Not A Day Goes By. Right. The tempo of some songs is a little slower, which is usually the opposite of what they do with Sondheim. I, I was going to say this. It's usually the opposite because they had to fit the music onto one LP is what they were trying to do. So some songs are sped up uh, in cast recordings. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, the, um, Frank Lachevin Inc. is a little slower, but it's still probably my favorite version. I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds about the, the book ends. I know you spoke a lot about it, so I won't go into it too deep. But mm-hmm. when you hear it, though, I think that is certainly the, it translates to just an audio medium much better sure. because you get these dialogue pieces from the kids with, oh, it's the old, tell them like it is speech and all that stuff. And it really gives you a different feeling as that opening song begins. And you sort of, it, it, it really sort of, yeah, it imparts this sort of like uneasy feeling almost. And I really, really like that. Something I like a great deal about the recording of this is so rarely do you get to listen to a Sondheim musical that was recorded in the time period in which it's set. I think it's just this and company. Right. I got you. Yeah. There are certain things about the way that they recorded music in the 70s and the 80s that just puts you right there. And I think it's it's best, the best example of this is um, in Like It Was. The, I think it's a muted trumpet that comes in mm. right before it with the da, 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 Charlie. And it's- Right. It's just something about the way that they recorded it back then. It sounds so 70s. And when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, this is like rich caramel. It's so nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a bit of that going on. Well, for sure. I think for for the vast majority of shows, the original Broadway cast normally has a bit of a leg up just because these who the songs were written for. They were yes. in a workshop together. They were All of the stuff was made for the performers that you are hearing on the album. Uh, so, so you called some standards here already. I think that uh, Lonnie Price as Charlie, like I still think does a great rendition of Franklin Shepard Inc. Absolutely. Uh, I like some of his vocal choices in like the Now You Know section and uh, Old Friends. Like I do like how he, his acting choices within those songs. But you're right, there's a, there's a few things that are kind of a hitch for me, which is like, uh, Frank really shouldn't be singing Not A Day Goes By, it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for Frank either. It, it doesn't work for Frank either. Yeah. Even though I know that that's what they were doing in the show, like that's how it was presented. But like just dramatically, that doesn't work for me. I love having the the Hills of Tomorrow, like you said, as the book ends. Are you familiar with the show Ride the Cyclone by any chance? 
I am, but only because of listening to your um, episode okay. where you mentioned it. <laughs> I think it was in our parlor songs episode for some weird reason. Uh, regardless, <laughs> I bring this up because I think it is now like my gold standard for how theater albums should be produced. They have a leg up because there is a character who is basically like the little machine from Big that you that they make a wish on and <laughs> becomes a younger person. But it's like like the I forget what his name now is, but like the great something in the machine is a narrator throughout that audio recording. And there's times where he'll actually interrupt and it's like, this is actually not what happens in the show. But in an audio medium, this is how we need to communicate what is happening. So enjoy. And then it'll just go into the songs or the thing. It's like, oh, that's, that's really brilliant. Clever. Not that I need a narrator, but I wish that maybe more albums were willing to change things up slightly just because if someone's experiencing it for the first time in audio, which to be frank, most people are, I think it just helps them out. It's like, oh, I'm actually how the show actually works and fits together here now. I think you're absolutely right. So that's all to say is like, I like The Hills of Tomorrow. I think it's nice as bookends. Here is where I get to be the negative Nancy. And I'm so glad that you called out how you love like the sound of this album. This is the one thing that kind of bugs me about this. And it's not true for every other original Broadway cast album that Sondheim did. And I don't know why it bugs me so much on this, but so many of the performances seem like they're so far away from the microphones. Like yes. there's moments of it where it's like, could you just move them closer a bit because the orchestration's beautiful they're so good and then some of the performances like what are they saying like they're so far away it seems that they're just not being picked up properly i don't know what that is i don't know why why it sounds like that to me sometimes i completely agree and i don't yeah i don't know what it is either because you can look at things like little night music mm -hmm. original recording and that has that echo even the original recording of company does not sound like yeah. that so and and they have that echoey kind of like that high reverb quality but yeah. it's still you can still hear them mixed very well with the with the orchestra whereas in here yeah it does kind of feel a bit like that and i wonder if it was if it was time or or they thought that maybe the the kids didn't have what it, which i don't yeah. think it was that i don't know i mean i think it has to be something like time and money where it's like hey we're making this album, which like by all rights should not have even been made because <laughs> yeah. it's, it closes in two weeks. We're going to make this album. We have like three hours to do this. So just come in, record and get out. I wonder if they just didn't do very many like retakes. That might've been it. Um, I mean, or maybe they spent all their time trying to get the main characters right. kind of down. And so they're like, all right, throw the chorus in now. And I do think that also on that same note, there are elements of this which um, do pull it back for me is not my favorite of the four we're discussing in that there's little elements that seem a little bit messy that is mm. not quite as tight. Opening Doors is, is an example where it's it's just not quite as tight as it is in some of the other casts where, there's, where they're dropping consonants or they're, they're not in exact, in exact unison. It's not quite as fast. Um, and I wonder if that was maybe because of the same rushed kind of thing yeah I, I don't know if i'm making this up i feel bad now i've been reading a lot of sondheim books here recently basically preparing for my sunday in the park with george season and now they're all getting jumbled but i think it might be from the paul gemignani book that just came out last year there's just a quick little aside about how yeah like the merrily recording the orchestra is actually ahead of some of the singers in a couple of instances yeah <laughs> Where think, they're actually that, yeah. not aligned. So it's Gemignani trying to like, oh, this is going off the rail. So let me just like do this little thing. And then now, okay, now we're back in time with the people who are singing. So it feels like it might have been just a rush job to get it pressed. I think you're absolutely right, mm -hmm. Kyle. I think that's probably what happened. Regardless, still, some of the performances in this are super great. As far as like the orchestrations go, it's probably my favorite opening doors from the four that we're going to talk about right today. yeah i can see that from the orchestrations i'll talk about vocally here in a moment how i think there's a better one okay if, if you had to if i was to press you one is there a standout song for you from this album 
I think there, I mean, Franklin Shepard Inc. would come second, mm-hmm. I think. But I think that Our Time is my standout for this album. And that's simply yeah. because it's probably the only time when the cast is the age of the characters in that mm. song. And of yeah, course, yeah, it yeah. works better to have 40-year-olds playing 20-year-olds because they have that experience and they learned that lesson quickly, I think. And every subsequent cast has been done that way. But when you're talking just audio, that song cannot be matched with a 40-year-old trying to get back to that place. Whereas these guys, mm-hmm. even though you know their dreams were dashed days before, they were still 20. They were still in a Sondheim show. They were still at the beginning of their lives. And I think you can hear that. If not, maybe I'm sort of projecting in the quality of their actual performance. Something is stirring, shifting ground, it's just begun. Edges are blurring all around, and yesterday is done. Feel the flow. I probably am projecting as well. It almost feels like they're devastated, because they probably were devastated <laughs> coming in to record this. But yeah, I agree that our time recording is, is phenomenal from that original Broadway cast. Yeah, it's fantastic. What about you? Do you have a favorite from the OBC? Yeah, I mean, I, it's. Um, I'll say that uh, I agree with you. Our time is great. Probably maybe the one that snuck up on me. I think I admitted this here earlier in the season. There was a song that I used to skip all the time, and now it's become one of my favorites, which is like it was. And I love, I love how Ann Morrison sings yeah. that song. I can retroactively go back in time and call myself an idiot because I don't know why <laughs> I had such a weirdness about that song, which has now become one of my favorites. I don't know who we are anymore, and I'm starting not to care. Look at us, Charlie. Nothing's the way that it was. I want it the way that it was. Help me stop remembering then. Yeah, that happens a lot, doesn't it? Where you have the, um, you skip, 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 and then one day you're like, maybe you won't skip it. And you're like, what was yeah. wrong with me? Yeah, what, this is beautiful. If you were to give a letter grade, what do you think you would give the OBC? I know I shouldn't be including the text, but I can't because it's just too different. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to give it a B just because of things like the mm-hmm. uh, Frank singing Not a Day Goes By. I do love growing up. I do love, but it's, it's, it's a B plus. It's close to an A. We did not confer about this beforehand. I'm also giving it a B. I think it's strong. I think it's solid. You're not going to have a bad time. In fact, to like spoil this, I don't think any of the recordings are going to be like a quote unquote bad time. Oh, I completely agree. But there are ones certainly that I prefer overall. But yeah, solid, solid uh, recording of the show. So let's get into the off-Broadway revival version. Again, this is from 1994. What do you want to say about this recording? Well, this one was the one that I learned merrily on. So okay. this is my first exposure. So it's so hard not to be biased. You said many mm-hmm. times before on the show that you cannot get past that first recording and what it meant to it you. It is true. Those voices. So this is, I'll, I'll, I'll um, spoil right away and say this is an A for me, this one. Um, <laughs> I, I can see, you know, that the orchestrations are a little bit more scaled down, obviously, because it's off-Broadway. Um, I don't know if they're sort of versions of Jonathan Tunick's orchestrations or if some, because there's a lot of similarities and most of the time you can hear those original things there, but they're just smaller. But I think that the performances in this album are fantastic. I love Malcolm Getz as Frank. I, I love Amy Ryder as uh, Mary and um, Charlie, uh, Adam Heller, I think is, you know, does a great job as well. I think that this one is just so tight vocally. It's, I feel it's very well directed. I feel like there, I could do with a little bit more dialogue, not mm. quite as much as some of the other ones, but um, for me, this is, this is a pretty tight and perfect cast album. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was my first one. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll say like going into the season, this is the I, I had never really listened to this version before. It was really the original Broadway cast and the encores version. Those are kind of the two that I knew the best. So I was excited to go into this because just like you said, I, I went on to actually some forums and they kind of reiterated everything that you just said. So I feel bad because for me, and maybe if I just listened to this a few more times, I'd have a far different opinion. Um, it's not that it's bad. I'm not saying that it's a bad recording, but it's like my textbook example of a perfunctory recording. It's like, yeah, it's good. I mean, I don't okay. know if there's anything that stands out for me necessarily. I think it has a lot to do, honestly, with the orchestrations. I'm just a fan of having the lush score underneath what the people are singing. It's it's also partly like my thing with like Jonathan Doyle. Is that the... No, the version of Company with Raul Esparza in it, which is like... Oh, yes. The the singer's great. It's like, I just wish the uh, orchestra was better instead of just the three instruments. I couldn't agree with you more when it comes to Company. I, I, I'm i so, yeah. like, all over the place with it. Because with Company, I'm like, no, I want that original score. I want to hear that mm-hmm. orchestra fully. Um, and then with this, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't mind it scaled back. And same with Little Night Music. I really love the revival from um, 2000, whatever it was, with um, Catherine Zeta-Jones and all that. So I, 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 I completely agree with you. I just don't in terms of my sort of like personal experience <laughs> with it but i can see why you wouldn't why you wouldn't like the um the scaled back orchestra because i have the exact same thing with a bunch of other of his his work any standout songs here for you opening doors is my favorite on this album um it's and good that's because it is a good version yeah it's so tight and i love i mean it's my favorite song in the show and or you know always switching with um not a day goes by but I, I, yeah it's so tight i think it's a little bit faster than tempo wise as well i think everybody's performance is, is fantastic I, it's a song that to me just gets better and better and better as the tighter you can get it and the sort of more you're able to jump all over the place with your performance in this you know relatively even though it's a longer song small song for how much time they're covering and when mm-hmm. you get that right it is just such a magic trick to watch it's such a delight I called a producer. I set off the one act. I started the story. He said to come see him. I dropped out of college. I met this musician. I'm playing a nightclub. They're doing my one act. I'm working for Red Bull. I rewrote the ballad. I finished the story. We started rehearsals. I threw out the story and then the musician. I'm moving to popular science. We're opening doors, singing, look who's here. Beginning to sail on a dime. The faraway shores getting very near. We haven't a thing to fear. We haven't got Basically, this is the the big thing. It sounds like so stupid to say it out loud, but it's like, as long as you follow the text, you're not going to have a bad time with with opening doors, right? It's like, you don't have to do anything flashy, just like what's written on the page. It's going to be great. So just follow yeah. what's on the page sort of thing. Do you have a favorite from this one? I was trying to f- kind of narrow it down, to be honest. Like, I think one thing I forgot to mention about the original Broadway cast is that the other inclusion, I, I've i come fully around here now and do prefer Rich and Happy over that, Frank. Oh, I see. Yeah. So I do I do <laughs> prefer Rich and Happy, I think, actually, over, over top of it. That being said... I like the introduction to the show quite a bit. After that orchestra and going right into that Frank, I think works extremely well inside oh, of this recording. Oh, it just bursts onto the stage. Yeah, yeah. I said, Frank, this picture is a watershed. I said, Frank, one day you'll run my studio. I said, Frank, will you listen to that response? I said, Frank really knows what the public wants. I said, Frank, this picture is a watershed. Know what I'm having? What? Not much fun. Party! It's up there with my favorite It's a Hit recordings as well. I think uh, I think they do a really good job with that 
with that absolutely section. i guess for that that frank thing is just going to be one of those things where like i would agree with the reasons why you think it's better than i think you probably agree with the reasons why i think that um mm-hmm. sorry you Vice versa, which is happy is better, and why I'd think that Frank is a better choice. But it's, I guess, it just comes down to your personal taste, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, I know. I, like, I, I honestly, I started the season being like, I think I like that Frank better. And then the more I think about it, and the more I explore these songs, it's like, no, I think Rich and Happy is actually a better, better reason to have it in. Well, on that actually, this this version, um, I think does a much better, a much better version of the quiet. Um, that Frank he handled that oh, well. Yes, they put I it right after the no pool. Which I think is right. so funny because it's a huge explosion of noise, and then suddenly this whispered, like uh, this whispered lyrics. And I think in the Lester version, they do uh, just figure out what the A stands for. That's the lead mm-hmm. into that moment, and I think it works so much better with the the poor Frank after no Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're giving it an A. I struggled with this, like, like you said. I don't. I don't think it's a bad recording or anything. So I was like, I don't know, somewhere within like a B minus, maybe a C plus if I was feeling really nasty one day, but like, <laughs> it's fine. The, so yeah, the next recording is the one that I listened to the very first time this week from, from start to finish. I never listened to a single song from this recording before this week, which is It's a Mouthful, the Haymarket Theater in Leicester. Like I said, this was originally done in 1992 and is fun because this does actually have Maria Friedman as Mary, yes, who would go on to direct Mary or direct Mary, which would go on to direct Merrily We Roll Along at the Chocolate Factory in in the UK, and has now transferred it to Broadway. So the version you see on Broadway is directed by Maria Friedman, who used to be Mary in this version. And when you sent me this, I was like, "Oh my goodness, I can't believe it!" Yeah, I mean that mm-hmm. that Chocolate Factory version, I think, is unbelievable. I I, I love mm-hmm. I, I love her direction in that show. And from what I understand, to be fair. This is from Wikipedia. It's a really convoluted sentence. But from what I understand, this is the version that goes on to win Best Musical at the the award ceremony that's in the UK. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, the Olivier's? The Olivier's. It wins the Olivier Award for Best Musical. So it's this version wow. that actually wins the Olivier Award. Interesting. So th- th- there was a weird journey to it because it did not have Maria Friedman in it when it eventually gets to the West End. So it, got, oh, it, it, okay. it changed up the cast, goes into, it was at the Donmore Warehouse. So it goes into oh, yeah, the Donmore yeah. Warehouse. Uh, in December 2000, that's how long it took for this version to get there. By that time, they'd replaced the, all three actors. So it was Julian Ovenden as Frank, Samantha Spiro as Mary, and Daniel Evans as Charlie. And then they win the Olivier Award for Best Musical that year. But it was the same version that got there. Wow, that's that's fantastic. It's, it's interesting that she went on to direct it, because I wonder how much of her experience in that production sort of made her fall in love with the show and then sort of I wonder it's interesting mm-hmm. if she was thinking right back then oh this is how I would do it I mm-hmm. this is my this might be sacrilegious and I, and I apologize but I don't love her as Mary yeah. I I'm sure it might be a visual <laughs> thing but there's it when I'm listening just to the audio and I respect her I think she's a great actor and I think that, that she's an unbelievable director but I just didn't feel her as Mary at all yeah these this probably has my least favorite of the of the performances, I guess, like just like acting choices within it. Vocally, I think that they're doing some interesting things here and there's some interesting recording bits that they put in. Like I'm um, talking about uh, It's a Hit again. This is the only one that actually does include the joke that's supposed to happen at the end of that song, which is the people coming out of the theater and being like, yeah, it was okay. And then ah. they finish with It's a Hit. <laughs> so like that's fun to hear that included in the recording. They do a lot of that, don't they? There's a lot of dialogue in this that is there that is. I think is very helpful. I do think it might be a bit of a double-edged sword, though, because there's these moments that 
sort of happen visually on stage, like when Frank leaves with Gutsy and in the chocolate factory version, he just takes the phone off the hook and places it on the piano and then sort of walks off and it's this dramatic moment because it's only mm -hmm. audio. You hear him go, uh, can I get the downtown cup, please? Uh, and it's just, it doesn't really work for me because it's like kind of too polite for him in that moment. Well, it also does my, the thing that I absolutely can't stand. I know this is such a weirdness of me. So I want to preface this. This is a weird thing that I do not like. I actually don't mind if there's a bit of setup to the song. So a little bit of dialogue at the beginning. I can't stand when it's at the end of a song. For whatever reason, it's like, no, put that uh, at the beginning of the next track. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with what you're saying for sure. Because you want it to be like, bum, and then finish. Yeah, and then, and then we're ending. Because they do like the performance of Good Thing Going at the party. And then they have a bit of the blob that goes on. And then there's uh, the part two that starts as another song. But they have yeah. so much of what is really a part of the blob as at the end of the a Good Thing Going track. Anyways, drives me nuts. I don't know what it is about it, but it drives me nuts. I, go, I agree completely. And I think you are 100% right with that. It's very irritating. You know, I would, just really quickly on Maria Friedman McBerry. What I think... I was going, why did, why didn't I like this? Why is it annoying me? And then I put my finger on it. It's when in Old Friends Part 1, and like it was, I think it happens the most, it's very shaky and weak, her voice. Not yeah. weak in terms of like its power, but it, it feels very like a wilting flower type. And I just don't buy Mary like that compared to, say, like Amy Ryder or um, Jenna Russell in the Chocolate Factory version. Mm -hmm. We both managed to be vulnerable, but still with strength and sturdiness. And I love Mary's character so much. Yeah. And I think this moment works, well, which is trying to get Charlie around and still has that Mary competence and is sure of what she's saying. Well, even if, um, I believe it's Lindsay Mendez, who's the, who's on Broadway now, powerhouse voice. So like it, it you do need Mary to be Whoa. like, bah, like she is in your face, right? Yeah. She's not a wilting flower. Not at all. No. Oh, she's so mm -hmm. cool. I will say though, I do like the orchestrations in this one better than than the previous one. I think there's yep. a little bit more power behind them. I can see that. Um, oh, there's actually this is kind of completely the opposite. But there is one my favorite track is, which is so silly on this one, is um, Transition Three, uh, <laughs> and that's because is it the of one all the ones that they whistle. Because there's a, no, it's, there's it's, one where it's right after um, that moment, just before it's a hit. Oh, sorry, just sorry, okay. pardon me. Just just before a day goes by um, at the mm -hmm. courthouse, and it. It, it is just flutes and um, like a triangle and it's so light and scaled back and it's almost plaintive because you've seen this theme enough times this t this, at this point with brass, it's quite heavy and there's something so sad about this moment right before we see the divorce and we're getting close to the end of act one and you can kind of feel that and it's just dun, 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 dun. and it's just like, mm -hmm. oh, something's been lost in this moment in this scene beforehand. So I love what they've done with that, which isn't really on the other ones. And this is also the one that has a lot of like interject. Well, I shouldn't say a lot. There is some interjections in the uh, Bobby, Jackie, and Jack section that I've never heard before. Yeah, uh, in a recording at least, because yeah, there's little interjections and jokes happening in between some of the stanzas. It's like, oh, I actually don't think I've ever heard this on a recording before. Obviously, I must have seen it when I watched the pro shot, but somehow I've forgotten about it. That's why it's so nice to go over a bunch of different recordings, isn't it? Because you sort of mm -hmm. keep learning little bits. It's lovely. It's like unlocking little things like, oh, that's how this works. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I've also got, why does Beth sound, and this again, this is so rude. 
But Beth sounds to me like she's like 40 in this show for some reason. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it's her Southern accent. It's actually Phyllis Diller. She's just like smoking a cigarette. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Elaine Stritch is Beth. It's um, Beth. <laughs> not seeing this visually. Maybe it works completely well visually. But as an auditory medium, it's like, ooh, they sound a lot older than what I think they should be. And Beth's a weird one because you can kind of have her. It's like 20 or 30 because she only comes in. What's true this, enough yeah you know you don't really see her by the end so i actually ended up liking this a little bit more than i thought it was going to from the start of it because it was like okay yeah i've now heard this three different other different times is there anything new that this is going to bring to me so i did end up liking it i'm i'll be very honest though i'll probably never return back to listening to this album again i agree i, I have my other two favorites that i'm going to go back to but it's not again as i said at the beginning it's not bad if you have this accessible to you it's, it's worth a listen for sure oh absolutely i mean just just for the those little dialogue things alone and and some of the some of the things that you don't get at any of the other albums it's certainly worth listening and i think i will go back maybe at some point but i think you're right you sort of stick to your two favorites don't you yeah i am uh, i will i will reveal this right now as a special treat i guess but uh Ooh. i've been working on this for like the last mm, three weeks or so and i don't know when it's going to be ready so who knows maybe it's been released already uh, i'm trying to make like my official like sondheim playlist that i can then oh. share share out and that's what it is like I very rarely go outside of like two different cast recordings because like I like this song from this one and this one from this one uh, and then picking my favorite songs from like the whole entire catalog which uh, it's actually been very tricky and then finding out how to put them in the order that I think makes the most sense is actually the trickiest. It's very difficult to rate things that you absolutely love, isn't it? Because you start right. to get all weirdly emotional about it, where you're like, well, I can't put that there because what would Sondheim think? And oh no, I don't <laughs> want to upset Dot because she's so... <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm, you start mm -hmm. getting really weird with it. And it's, yeah, it's, it's you're splitting hairs at a certain point. It's like both of these I think are A plus, but what do I think is more A plus than, yeah. <laughs> than this one? <laughs> you start over obsessing, really. Uh, that's, that's so exciting that you're doing that. I can't wait to listen to it. It's uh, 50 something songs strong right now. So I'm trying oh. to figure out how to <clears throat> how to maneuver that. But uh, uh, that's all to say. Yeah, um, like I said, I, I, I basically have this tied with uh, the the off-Broadway version, so somewhere in that B minus C plus territory, it's it's kind of right there. Perfectly adequate, in my opinion. <laughs> Perfectly okay. What would you give it as a letter grade? Oh, I'm going to give it a B minus, I think. Okay. Okay, so we get to the 2012 Encores version. This is where my bias starts to show through, because this t really is like the first version of Merrily I listened to. Uh, this is kind of how I was first introduced to it as one of the last Sondheim shows I was like really getting into. So for a lot of it, like this is how I hear Merrily a lot of times in my head, um, even though, again, I do acknowledge that the original Broadway cast does a few of them like better. Uh, but for whatever reason, this is what I immediately go back to. Before I talk about my opinions, what is your overall impression of this Encores album? Um, I'm sort of in two minds about it. I think it's a bit of a conundrum. Um, I think it's the first major one to match the orchestra size of the original, um, which is fantastic. Yes. And it's really you nice to hear. the voices hear. properly and the orchestra size is perfect. I agree with that. <laughs> exactly. And that's really hard to get past it not being number one. And it, it is number two for me, mm -hmm. I think, or maybe equal with OBC. But um, you hear, yeah, you can hear all that. It's it's well mixed. It's it's fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. But I do have a few issues with performances. And this is nothing against their those actors because they're all fantastic, but they only had a few weeks, I think, you know? Sure. And I'm sure they had a little more time for the for the cast recording. But um, as much as Lin-Manuel Miranda, Lin Miranda does a great job, he's just not quite there, Charlie, for me. 
Same with all of them, really, all the main three. And again, they all do a really good job. And it could just be because I heard the other ones first. That's interesting because there's- I, I would probably agree with you with two out of the three, but there's actually one that I think is actually great. What was uh, it? The capital G great, which is Scalia Keening-Bolger, who I think is phenomenal in this one. Oh. I love her performance as Mary. And there's certain vocalizations and way she, that she does things. Like her, like, I'm having a breakdown and opening doors still makes me laugh. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but she does such a great job in that section. I think she grew on me as I went and listened to this one, because I'll, I'll confess, this is one of the ones that I, up until... I knew I was doing this episode listened to probably the least, except for obviously Lester, because I didn't know it existed. And um, I think that she'd grown me quite a bit as well. Um, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think some of her vocal decisions and the choices she's making are, are really, really spot on Mary. Yeah. I'm, if I'm going to be gracious about it, I think that Lin-Manuel, if he had been given, I don't know, two, three more weeks, I think would have probably nailed it exactly right. I agree. It's a hard thing because I think, I, I, I know this is like scandalous to say now because there's been a lot of like blowback on Lin-Manuel Miranda as an artist, but like, I think he's a talented performer. I think he's a really gifted composer and lyricist himself. But the one criticism that I do agree with sometimes, like you always know it's Lin-Manuel. Like there's no, uh, there's no way around it. But that is also true from classic Broadway. You always knew it was Carol Channing singing. There's no exactly. way around Carol Channing it's, singing. Exactly. It's something that we've sort of um, become a lot more critical of, I think, in, like these days. And yeah, I agree. I think Lin-Manuel is a fantastic writer, fantastic um, musician. And I think that uh, he just has a very, very distinctive voice and mm -hmm. you really can't get around that. And even though it really works for, say, Charlie and maybe not for, say, Alexander Hamilton, it, um, it, it it is you you I just can't hear it without being like oh it's it's a it's a it's a Snavi or it's um Alexander <laughs> Hamilton being Charlie for some yeah. reason yeah the one thing and this has been called out I do not know well why they decided to do it how it made it onto stage and then got put onto the record which is the racist caricature that they do oh in opening doors because it's, it's not in the original it's not no. in any other recording so this was an acting choice that colin Donnell did and it's like buddy like this, uh, this is 2012. 2012 this is not 1981 that you did this which by the way they yeah they like you said they didn't do and I, when i first heard it, i was like oh am i listening to the wrong album like this is like years ago now and i was like it's like oh i thought i put on the yeah. 2012. no it's it's insane because and i love the fact that everyone was like i don't know what the context was but everyone was like okay just don't i guess let's do it <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird choice. I, th I think overall, like I just, I just love the orchestrations matched with the vocals on this one. This, like I say, this is the one I kind of go to most often to listen through kind of all the way. The, the now, you know, section is honestly my personal favorite. There is that moment where like, all, like the three songs are overlapping with each other. Yeah. And because of the recording, it's like, I don't think it's ever sounded as good. Like they just yep. nail that, like uh, the, the trumpets going high and the, the three of them kind of overlapping. And it's just like, this is great. This is great musical theater right now. Right, right. Best thing that ever could have happened. Yesterday is the best star. thing that ever could have happened. I completely agree with you on that. Um, I think now you know also in obviously all, all the versions except the original. I love the fact that the, the I think the lyrics s start so much slower and replicate right. what an actual conversation would be. And I don't mean slower in tempo, but they sort of start off. Like I think the the first line in the OBC is like, "She'll get a new dame, you'll write a new show," and he's like, "What?" It's like it cuts into it really quickly. Whereas yeah. you've got so you've made a mistake, so you're singing the blues, so you'll take some time, go visit some places. Like it's it really starts right. slower in the themes and as opposed to having like. All these like get a new woman 
And here's another platitude and here's another metaphor, like right off the back. I think it was a really good rewrite. Um, and yeah, I agree. I love this version of, of that song. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I also wanted to say was I love uh, Betsy Wolf as Beth in this, mm. um, in this version. She's great. Great singer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think she actually, funnily enough, probably does one of my favorite like she's the only one who I think, oh, and I guess now that you pointed out Mary as well, who I'm like, oh, I can't tell that you only had two weeks to do this. Like she, mm. I think, does such a beautiful version of this song, only matched by um, Claire Foster from the Chocolate Factory version, who does my favorite performance of it ever. Where it's just right. so heartbreaking. Where she's reaching out to him and then pulling her hands back, and she wants to touch him but she can't, and she's fighting herself in the moment. Yeah, I think Betsy Wolf's performance of this is matching that. It's just beautiful. And- What would you give it? What's your letter grade? I'm going to give it a so difficult B plus, only because yeah. of the performance is pulling it back. But um, but yeah, I it's it's almost an A. One day I'll give it a a one yeah. B plus. I agree, B plus, maybe A minus. I was feeling like very generous <laughs> on, a, on yeah. a certain day. This is what I'm actually the most excited about with this off Broadway version. I would assume, I guess I can't assume anymore, but I would assume they'll be making a recording of that that performance. You would hope. My so. only hope is that. Uh, well, A, I, I think the orchestrations will sound great. The performances are going to be great uh, from the snippets that I've heard and seen. My hope is that for the album, at the very least, they do the full orchestra, because that's what guts me, is that they don't do the full orchestra in that version that's yeah. currently running off-Broadway, which seems like sacrilege to me. It really does. And you'd think that when tickets are going for, what, $1,000 a seat at this point, you can it's probably two minutes aff- at the beginning. Come on. Yeah. yeah, you could afford to just like throw the orchestra in. Does it just do it? Yeah, I, I agree. I really hope they do it the full orchestra. I think there will definitely be an album. You think it would be it would be ridiculous if they didn't. I will say too, like what some albums do is they get a bigger orchestra for the recording than they have actually in the theater, which yeah. is um, again something I'm not uh, not mad at. You should <laughs> that that's fine. Are we give give a how about some of something for those of us who can't afford to pay thousand dollars to see Daniel Radcliffe? That's right. Yeah. I was going to say, I should have asked this at the beginning. Have you ever seen like a production of Merrily in person? Like, have you gone to a theater and seen a version of Merrily we roll along? I have. There was a um, production, there's a theater um, in Sydney called The Hayes, um, which mm. is really one of the only theaters we have in Sydney that does what I would consider good musicals. And by that, <laughs> I mean, I want to, by that, I mean, just like we just tend to get wicked over and over and oh and over. like the traveling shows they're going yeah to. and jersey boys and mary poppins and they, there's a place for that and you being an avenue q fan were, <laughs> were happy when it beat wicked for best musical so oh i didn't even know what the tonys was back then but i remember listening to yeah. it in broadway and being like yeah but yeah um hayes did a, a production of it which was postponed for years because of COVID, and i saw it mm. last year and um there was some things i really kind of disagreed with with the direction um i really like dean bright as a director who's done a bunch of other stuff that i really enjoyed but there was some stuff in this that I just thought was a little bit like, oh, I want to spend a little bit longer on that. But um, one thing in particular that I really loved was um, the person who played uh, Charlie Ainsley. I've forgotten his surname. I'm going to feel terrible. Did his Charlie, it was such an interesting choice. It really didn't have much nerdiness to it, 
or shabbiness mm. to it. It was very kind of a very dignified Charlie, which you'd think might sort of pop it off balance, but it really didn't. And so things like um, uh, Franklin Shepard Inc., as opposed to him sort of being this guy who's losing his mind and you kind of feel a little <laughs> bit sorry for at points, he was just kind of super funny and like, and sort of like, it's like, yeah, screw you, Frank. Like he, it, it was, he didn't seem to be like as nervous and sort of flop sweaty as, as some of the other performances of it. Instead, he was kind of like very witty about it and it was, it was a really nice oh, choice. Interesting. Okay. I mean, it's always fun to see other people's interpretations, right? Whether you like, end up agreeing with it or not, it's, it is kind of what separates um, musical theater from opera. And people have written in criticizing me about me talking about opera that I, I, I don't <laughs> know about a lot. So hopefully I'm not overstepping my bounds. But from what I understand, like the, the beauty of opera is that you're going to see them perform it the exact same way every single time, like at least the arias and the, and the songs, whereas musical theater, oftentimes what people are wanting is like, I want something new and something different and some and a new interpretation of this classical text sort of thing. Absolutely. I mean, it keeps it living on, right? As opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, really rich 107 year old white people keeping it living on. <laughs> or maybe, I, maybe I, I'm going to get in trouble now as well, because I, I agree. I, I don't know anything about opera either. <laughs> people can send letters to Jake. Uh, there is an 18 hour time difference, though, so it's going to take a while for him to respond. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. This has been really great to go through these uh, different recordings that are available out there. Thank you, Kyle. Before we wrap up, there is something that I've been doing here this season. So pretend that I have uh, created a time machine. I'm a bit of a tinkerer, as some people know. So I've created this time machine with this really weird directive. The only thing that we can do is to go back in time and watch a Broadway show that you have not seen before. So what are we going to see? Uh, it's such a boring answer because it's just the original Sunday. <laughs> it's it's, sure. it's it's like the equivalent of like a religious person saying I'd go back to see the birth of Christ. You know what I mean? Like it's such a boring answer. Right, but right. I, mean, I have seen a version of Sunday, but I obviously haven't seen the original cast. I just don't know if I would do the playwrights um, horizons with um, mm. the first act and not the second, or if I would wait and see the full two act thing. But um, yeah, I just I would love to see um, Mandy and Bernadette in that because I just love that show so much it's good good answer and uh honestly a really great setup here for our, our next season starting in a, in a few weeks from when this oh. uh from when this publishes so i've been looking forward to this season since i first found your show that and into the woods <laughs> I, I can't wait I, I think you're gonna have a i mean god into the woods is gonna be a long season i guess isn't it because there are so many songs it's gonna be as long as yeah scenic. so here's here's the deal folks just to let people in i have semi plotted this out so we're finished up merrily here this is coming out near the end of february is when this when this episode is coming out uh i'm taking march to basically do the sondheim revisited uh section just to give me time to prep and do all the sunday stuff that they need to do then sunday and into the woods combined is going to take us through the rest of the year and i won't have finished into the woods yet i'll be like <laughs> two-thirds oh of the goodness. way through it <laughs> wow so this year is basically finishing up merrily all of sunday and two-thirds of into the woods is really what we're going to get through <laughs> What are you going to do? I mean, I'm sure someone else has asked this. In fact, I never have. But what are you going to do when when you hit the end of it? Once we get through, I mean, maybe the um, Buniel, or have you pronounced it, project will be out in some maybe, form by then. Yeah, but maybe maybe square, square one will be ready to go. I'm just going to do it in reverse, actually. I'm just going to start <laughs> from the bend and go right back to the very beginning again. No, I mean, to answer your question realistically... I don't know. I, I've actually thought a little bit about it. Luckily, I think I have three more years before I really have to worry about it. But uh, whether it continues on, if I end it, if I keep talking about song time, I just kind of just pick out random songs here and there. Or the more drastic thing is pick a different composer and go through their entire body oh. of work. But I don't know who William that would Finn. be or, or what I'd want to do. 
What's that? I said William Finn would be nice mm, for me yeah. and about 20 other people, I suppose. <laughs> but, that's right. Um, that's right. Is, um, I, I had a really quick question for you, Carl, because I've, yeah. I've always wondered this. Does, because obviously you are obsessed with Sondheim and as are most of your guests on the show, there's that old adage that if you take something that you love and you make it work, it can kill mm. your sort of enjoyment of it. Have you found at all that your, because I mean, you, you go so deep and you, and you sort of do these tiny sort of these other small episodes on things that you know you wouldn't think would fill a whole episode and you right. you must be completely drowning in Sondheim by this point has it has it changed your affection for him in any way honestly I I, I mean this truthfully I, I feel like I have a deeper appreciation for his work um oftentimes because of those very episodes I was like there's no way I am filling even like 20 minutes talking about like this song. And then we end up talking about for 45 minutes and it's like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's, there's, there's richness here. There's, there's, there's greatness here. Now oh, that's so nice to hear. <laughs> now I will say, and I, I hope this, this comes across. I'm a huge fan. I do love his body work. Do I think every song that he wrote was like a knockout, like a plus material? No, but his hits are the hits. Like there, there are some great stuff. And even some of his like, quote unquote, like B-level material is like, this is really interesting how he's going mm. through this and deconstructing this song and the stop process and how this fits into other songs. Like Merrily being one of the, has been really fascinating to go with because I thought I had a good handle on the show. And then by the end of this season, I was like, I didn't. I actually learned some stuff as I went through this and have a deeper appreciation for how this score works together. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I ever would have had I not taken the time to go song by song. That's great. It's nice to hear that because I was like, oh, I sure hope yeah. Kyle's not getting overdone with Sondheim at this point. Because as a listener, it's nice. To, you, you sort of do feel like like you you bring up things that we never thought of. Or your guest brings up things that you never thought of. And you're like, oh, this is this is such a fun journey. I just wondered if you had to schedule it all the time, would it be as fun? It, it only gets uh, bad when I'm bad at planning. I'm like, oh my God, I actually have to record an episode like two days so I can get it out in two weeks from now. But <laughs> luckily, I'm usually ahead of the game a little bit. Jake, thank you so much for joining me. If people wanted to follow you online, see what you're up to, what is the easiest way to do so? I'm on Instagram, um, Jake Nielsen underscore, an underscore at the end, and that's Nielsen, nice. N-I-E-L-S-E-N. Um, and if you want to check out any of my uh, work or any of my, my co-writer's work, it's um, jakeandmatt.com.au. Um, yeah, or on Spotify, Jake Nelson, if you want to uh, listen to some tracks. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Carl. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. You can send emails to puttingittogetherpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow Sondheim Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash puttingittogetherpodcast. Thank you to the Alberta Podcast Network and to Park Power this week. Putting Together is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere you get podcasts from. Consider subscribing so that you never miss an episode. Next week, we'll be talking about the best worst thing that ever could have happened, otherwise known as the reason why Sunday in the Park with George exists. As always, a big thank you to the great Chris Taniguchi, who designed the podcast artwork, and Nick Driscoll for composing our theme music. Well, we've reached the end of our episode. Yes, I know. Goodbye for now.